Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Tonight on the show, mass incarceration to e-carceration. We'll talk global and we'll talk local. Earlier today, I had the chance to talk with James Kilgore, activist, researcher, and writer based in Urbana, Illinois, where he's lived since paroling from prison in 2009. He ended up there due to his activity with the Symbionese Liberation Movement back in the 70s. Today, he's the director of the Challenging Ecarceration Project at Media Justice and the co-director of First Followers Reentry Program in Champaign, Illinois. February 10th, the Utah Clean Slate Law goes into effect and marks the beginning of automatic record clearance. We'll find out more with Noella Sudbury, Executive Director of Clean Slate Utah, a new nonprofit, in fact, just got their status verified in July of 2021. And before we get to our Sundance Film Festival update for the night, earlier today, I Zoomed with Pumaikai Igawi, a board member at Pacific Island Knowledge to Action Resources, that's PICTAR, a nonprofit in our community, which also held a community meeting last night to sort out how we can help here in our community, folks rebuilding after that underwater volcano erupted in Tonga. According to news reports, the first international aid flights are arriving, but closer to home here in Utah, we have a big Pacific Islander community, friends and family wondering what's up with loved ones and how we can help. Here's what Pomaikai Igawi had to say. Pomaikai, how are you? Aloha, I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. Last night, I understand there was a community meeting. What happened? What was talked about? Give us the breakdown. Well, we're, we're trying to figure out where can Pictar be a part of this mass um, um, production that's going on to help our family and friends out there in Tonga. Um, and one thing we've we've realized that there's a lot of people on the ground working and getting things together. So we're going to help direct people with donations, especially if they have tangible items that they can donate. We want to make sure that they go to the right places. Um, so we're currently going to be working with the LDS Church, as well as the International Federation of Red Crescent, which is the international arm of the uh, Red Cross. Yeah. What, if, what are folks hearing in our local community about how folks fared? Because some of the, the flyovers and the satellite images show the, the destruction of this underwater yes. volcano that exploded. Erupted. We're just getting... We're just getting bits and pieces. Uh, those that we were able to contact, they're doing well. Um, they're devastated by what had happened. Um, and they're just trying to get themselves together. So when international help comes in, they know exactly what to do and where to get those um, items to, the places that needed the help. Um, we've seen pictures this morning that came from the media as far as some of the devastation. Um, happy to see people are still smiling there, um, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, we've had people reaching out to Pictar ever since it's, ha it's been happening. And we've been trying to figure out what will be our place in helping our, our family. So we've went ahead and set up a, um, a bank account at Zion's Bank. And uh, we want everybody to go there and donate the, if they have funds which uh, people are reaching out about. So we want to make sure that they go to Zion's Bank, any branch, and just let them know that they want to donate to the um, Tongan Relief uh, Fund. And that's all at Zion's Bank, once again, for anyone that wants to donate monetary donations. 
great. And as so often happens in natural disasters, the second disaster is all the help that floods in. Yes. It needs to be organized and coordinated. And also Tonga has uh, been relatively unscathed by COVID and now bringing in outside resources threatens the community as well, right? Yes. And that's, that's another thing that we're worried about. So we're trying to figure out when would be the best time to, to interact with them face to face. So right now, all we have are these agencies that are working and with boots on the ground. And we're just trying to be as supportive as, as we can, especially to the families here in Utah, and around the globe that are struggling to find out any information that they can get on their family members because satellite is out. If, I mean, if they have satellite phones, uh, but as far as internet and stuff, it's kind of spotty or non-existent at, yeah. at this point. So that, underground, that underground cable that got cut as a result yeah, that provided yeah. the internet to the islands. Yes. So, <laughs> oh my God, Igawi, please keep us in the loop. Love to have you back. And we'll put links in the show notes to all the details about Pacific Island Knowledge to Action Resources and this Zions Bank account. So thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Today is opening day of the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, which has pivoted entirely online and not without some controversy. But we're here to talk about the films. Earlier today, I Zoomed with our red carpet, well, does that still even count, correspondent Autumn Thatcher. So here we go. Autumn, how is the pivot going for you? Well, you know, I took it a little hard at first um, just because for me, covering the red carpet and covering, I mean, we say red carpet. I do the red carpet coverage, but I, a lot of what my time up at Sundance looks like is engaging in the festival experience by attending panels that are open to the public without having to have a festival pass and going to some of the events um, and just just being there and, and experiencing it from the streets, I guess, without being in the seats watching the film. So for me, that's really hard to do in a virtual environment. Um, so I was a little bummed, but also a little relieved too, because I was getting a little bit nervous about it. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, the rest of our team, Eric Nelson and Cody D of Maximum Distortion, I've already talked to them about their top five. And I'm finding that there's a lot of overlap with uh, our team this year. In fact, on your list that they've already spoken about, uh, the Nothing Compares documentary of Sinead O'Connor, the Janes about the group of women who all went by the name Jane to provide abortions pre-Roe v. Wade. And then Sirens, Cody D is really excited about this one. Uh, Slave to Sirens, the first and only all-woman thrash metal band in the Middle East, another documentary there. So let's focus on the two others in your top five, shall we? Because they're good ones. Definitely. Um, all right. So the, the two others in my top five are Phoenix Rising, which is a documentary that is uh, – looking at um, Evan Rachel Wood and just the trajectory of, of her experience with talking openly about the uh, domestic abuse that she experienced and naming her abuser, which is a major public figure, uh, Marilyn Manson. And so I've been, I'm really interested in watching this just because I think it takes a lot of strength to do what she did. And, um, and also, 
I'm kind of reconciling my own feelings over this because I was a Marilyn Manson music fan. You know, I, I think I told you offline that I, um, I've been to a few Marilyn Manson concerts. My, my five-year-old listened to Marilyn Manson with me in his younger years. And, and so just when all of this came out in 2021 and then Rolling Stone did a really in-depth expose on this, um, on the accusations uh, facing Marilyn Manson, I just got really sad, but also like ashamed that I was listening to his music and supporting it. And so just a lot of feelings I have about it. And so I guess it's my way of wanting to show support to Evan Rachel Wood and the other women that have come out and um, identified him as an abuser. And also just really curious about what messages she has for others who might be experiencing similar things and, and what messages of hope and strength she can offer. Another reconciliation uh, in a film is we need to talk about Cosby that Eric P. Nelson put on his list. So there's uh, quite a bit of that that happens through film in this festival. And then the other pick that you have is a musician as well. Yes, of course. Uh, so this one is um, Genius, a Kanye West trilogy. And I'm super curious about this. And I know we talked about, you know, um, before we knew that the Sundance was going to go online only, we had talked about, you know, what would I ask Kanye West if I could actually <laughs> interview him on the red carpet? And um, I, I still don't know what I would ask, but I'm, I really am hoping actually to maybe interview the two directors of this particular um, trilogy, this documentary, because they met up with him in 1998. And they, they met him at this party and they were super curious about just like what he was going to do and what, and so they followed him with the, with cameras for years. And so I just think it's going to be a really interesting look into the early days of Kanye before, um, I don't know, just before all of the hype and media with, and all this celebrity gossip and ties of, of him with uh, Kim Kardashian and and uh, just remembering that Kanye West, despite everything, is, is an incredibly talented musician. And so I'm excited to look into those early days and get a glimpse into that. I hope you do get to talk with the filmmakers because I'm curious how much creative control Ye let them have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be really interesting to know as well. Um, because especially knowing that when they started this journey, it was back in 98, before we you know when he was just getting started. And and I think with his celebrity and increase in success, like comes more of that creative control that he actually maybe felt more empowered to have versus what did he have in the beginning days. So yeah, so I'm, I'm aiming for that. I would love to get a chance to talk to them. Uh, but if not, at least I can, uh, I, I do plan to participate in the Q&A in the panel after the screening and hoping that there's some good sound bites there. We look forward to your report. Thanks, Autumn. Enjoy the now virtual Sundance Film Festival this year, okay? I will do my best. Thanks, Laura. And that is KRCL's red carpet correspondent for the Sundance Film Festival, Autumn Thatcher. Check tonight's show notes for a link to her top picks. And of course, just go to krcl.org and hit the Sundance tab to catch up with our latest on the festival and how you can see things free. All you got to do is sign up for a Sundance account. doesn't cost you anything. And there are local screenings that will be available to you as well as music 
In fact, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Mountain, you can see an online concert from Shunguzo, Brandy Clark, and John Doe of X, just one of the lineups set for you at Sundance 2022 this year. And won't cost you anything as long as you get that free account. When we come back, activist, researcher, and author James Kilgore, I'll be talking with him about his new book, Understanding Ecarceration. To get us from here to there, little hiatus coyote, Get Sun, featuring the legendary Brazilian composer Arthur Verakai on KRCL 90.9. Utah has more than 10,000 nonprofits, like Women of the World, which needs practical English volunteers and mentors. You can help forcibly displaced women make Salt Lake City their home and build community through self-reliance and trust. Details at womenofworld.org. This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock tonight, Democracy Now! Followed at 8 by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike. Gianni's Dirty Boulevard at 10.30. Rich Park's I Don't Sound Like Nobody at 1 a.m. Jolene's Illustrated Blues at 3 and John Florence kicks off your Friday, a brand new day, at 6 a.m. Author James Kilgore is an activist, researcher, and writer based in Urbana, Illinois, where he's lived since paroling from prison in 2009. He landed there because of his involvement in actions as part of the Symbionese Liberation Movement back in the 70s. Today, he's director of the Challenging Ecarceration Project at Media Justice and the co-director of First Followers Reentry Program in Champaign, Illinois. His new book is called Understanding Ecarceration, Electronic Monitoring, the Surveillance State, and the Future of Mass Incarceration. Here's our conversation. First of all, James, your experience isn't academic. You have firsthand experience in both the analog and now digital forms of incarceration. Will you just briefly describe your your long life and experience today? Okay, well... Um I mean, I've been an activist for a long time. I did six and a half years in prison in California. I was convicted of a series of, of uh, you know, violent felonies. Um, and when I came out of prison in 2009, I was put on electronic monitor for a year. That's kind of what triggered the research for this book. At the same time, I've been involved in my community doing reentry work uh, with an organization called First Followers, uh, working, building a, a, a cohort of formerly incarcerated people trying to create opportunities for people coming home from prison and also trying to do advocacy work in the community to change the minds of the mindset of people about incarceration, about individuals who have been incarcerated. And in the course of that, I've done a lot of writing. I did, <clears throat> I wrote several novels while I was incarcerated. And then I've written two, two, one book on understanding mass incarceration uh, previously. And then this one, which is about e-carceration. And the first one in 2015, Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time, and now your follow-up out this month, and uh, Understanding E-Carceration, Electronic Monitoring the Surveillance State and the Future of Mass Incarceration, folks. Check the show notes. We'll put links to both those books if you're interested in checking them out at the library or picking them up from a local bookseller. Um, there's a sentence in the press that your folks sent me that really caught my eye. Like a carceral grub hub, electronic monitoring has brought the prison to me rather than taking me to the prison. Let's talk about that because all things digital have grown under the pandemic and as an excuse, I think, in many, many cases. So talk about this literal carceral grub hub. Yeah, well, what I'm just trying to say is that when you're on an electronic monitor and you're on house arrest, that... Uh, your home becomes a prison. It becomes like a satellite jail cell. And your family 
becomes your 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 keepers, you know your 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 prisoners, and they they they're also you know directly impacted by the presence of this technology, which confines you to the house, but also confines them to being to providing basic services for you and probably weathering your financial costs as well. Since in a lot of instances, when you're on an electronic monitor, you're not allowed to work or you're only allowed to do certain types of jobs, which are often very difficult to find when you have a, the kind of a criminal background that, that, that most people have when they're on monitors. All this data that we put out every day, just surfing the net with all those cookies that we blithely click on and don't think about is part of this conversation. Uh, one's own data with an ankle monitor is then weaponized as well as your your family or whoever you're living with. Right. Well, what I'm trying to argue, I mean, I'm talking about e-carceration, which isn't just electronic monitors. Electronic monitors are probably the the kind of classic instance of these of this where technology is actually used to keep you, uh, you know, confined in 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 your in your living space, and you only and you have to get permission to leave. And your all your movements, you know, are recorded. But I think there's a lot of other technologies, as you've alluded to, that also are gathering our data. That would be uh, license plate readers, uh, cameras on the street, uh, drones, risk assessment tools. Uh, the, as you pointed, as you mentioned, this data can be weaponized, and it particularly targets what I call the criminalized sector, the working class, people who are predominantly have from low-income households and are disproportionately black, brown, indigenous, and so forth. So I think um, this tech, this is a set of technologies that's controlled by the state in combination with big tech corporations like Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. And all the data that we're generating ends up on the clouds, the massive hard drives that really are just deciding in many ways our future or deciding what kind of shoes we're going to buy as well as whether or not we're going to qualify for that low-income housing grant or qualify for the job we've just applied for. I worked for a police department for several years in communicating with the public, and I remember at a certain point a company that came in and started working with us on our data called Palantir. And I oh, didn't yeah. think much of it because, you know, we're supposed to work smarter, right? We're supposed to get our arms around the data. But as the state... There become these problems because the tech is ahead of our laws and as the public, our awareness of what's being done. What would you like the public to know um, that you've learned and talk about in your new book, Incarceration, that they don't know, that they don't understand is being done with tech? Well, I think, I mean, that's interesting that you work with Palantir, which is I, I did write about it in the book. I mean, they've been developing predictive policing technology, which is a very, very scary kind of Minority report kind of futuristic. Right, right. You know, let's we we think this person is likely to commit a crime based on all the data we have on them. So let's go surveil where we think they hang out and where they're likely to commit a crime and who they're likely to be committing that crime with. And and you know, the predictive data they gather may be how do gang members put their hand hold their hands in their pockets or what colors do they wear? All these kinds of things become part of the database. So, but I mean, that's just a small part of it, but the big part of it really is, uh, and I think you're alluding to this, is that we live in this, in this, you know, kind of technological wonderland that we love, 
we, we love our phones, right? We sleep with them, we hug them, we caress them like they're our dearest lovers. But um, at the same time, from my, from my mind, they're, they're, they're killing us. They're gathering all their our, that data that can then be turned around and used against us. And it's these big tech corporations that have figured out how to both weaponize and marketize this data to make money, but also to gain more control over society. So I think we need to think about the role that these big tech companies are playing and you know government in partnership with them. And I mean, I write about something which I call the cell phone paradox, which is what I just mentioned. The cell phone is, we, we love it, but it's killing us. So we need to be a little more reflective about what happens and how do we control this technology? You talk about it, uh, incarceration and the use of technology depriving people of their liberty. And I really want to go back to what you said about what this technology is doing to, to the criminal legal class, so to speak, and um, that the status quo doesn't see it, doesn't feel affected by it either. So that digital divide we talk about in terms of access is also growing in the carceral state. Oh, totally. So, um, you know, we find, I mean, I remember when Edward Snowden came out with all that data that their NSA was tracking our phone calls. I mean, the, the reaction of a certain more privileged sector of the population was, what are you tracking me for? Uh, I'm not doing anything. And, and, and then, but their next statement is, you should be tracking those people over there. And those people over there are all the people who are in the databases for the so-called bad people, whether that's because they have a criminal record, whether that's because they have a history of substance use, whether they have mental health issues, whether they've been in child protection, uh, foster pro ch children programs, whatever. All these things are stigmatizing data that companies like Palantir use to profile the, you know, those so-called bad people. And then it, it, it deprives you of your liberty. By that, I mean, it deprives you of opportunity. You can't get housing, you can't get employment, you can't get medical care, you can't get credit because of all that data, which may or may not be correct as well. I mean, we have no we have no control over what data is actually in our records. When people do a background check on us, do we know what's produced? Is that us? I once saw a background check on me that had me being arrested in Tennessee. Um, it had me as six foot three, 220 pounds, while I'm five foot nine, 185 <laughs> pounds. So, you know, it couldn't have been me, but there I was. I, if I hadn't, I mean, that came up in a probation report, but if I hadn't seen it, it'd still be there. I could find somebody, you know, some police rolling up out in front of my house, arresting me for what this James Gilgore character did in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But it becomes very hard to challenge what the computer says, right? That, that's exactly right. And especially these risk assessment tools where you don't know what the formula is, you only know that you got a score of nine and you need a score of 10 to get that housing opportunity. Oh, these damn scores, I'm telling you, they make me crazy, James. Talking with James Kilgore, and he is author of a new book that's really grabbed my attention, and I hope you'll give it a look too, folks. It's called Understanding Ecarceration, Electronic Monitoring, the Surveillance State, and the Future of Mass Incarceration. James, part two of your book, Connecting the Dots from Ankle Shackle to Surveillance State. I think that a lot of us 
think of the surveillance state as something that hasn't happened yet. But with all the technology and the cookies and everything, we're living in a surveillance state. And the chapter that really caught my eye, Data Profiteering from the Bodies of the Criminalized. Um, incarceration is profitability, even more so, I'm guessing, with this data, James. I mean, I think it's early days with some of this and how they how they can construct, you know, basically a system of derivatives based on betting on people's futures. So maybe you're, <clears throat> you, you design a program uh, that's supposed to reduce the rate of people returning to prison. And then you attract investors who are paid uh, a dividend if fewer people go back to prison and will not get a dividend if lots of people go back to prison. So the whole, the whole premise of the thing is based on you become so you know you're like the you know and you're like the uh, you know like the Indianapolis Colts or something. You're a team that somebody's betting on. Only it's your life. You know it's not a game. It's your life. And so then they have to create these investment vehicles that are connected to your outcome. But then whoever's running that program has a monetary interest to please the investors. So maybe the maybe the investors are betting against the program. <laughs> Sell it, short selling it, right? Exactly. So they're betting. Well, this thing is going to fail. So then you're running the program. You want that invest. You want these investor dollars. So maybe you maybe you want a couple of your people to fail, so you can, you know, so so they can get more money and they come back and and reinvest. I mean, it's 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 early days. It's complicated. But the more data they generate. And the more they develop these algorithms to be able to calculate risk and uh, and link that to an investment opportunity, the you know the the, the more problematic it becomes. Well, you, you're a, a member of the club, so to speak, and I'm kind of curious about the First Step Act. I was reading a story on CNN today about the final rule being published by the Biden administration, whereas the proposed rule under the previous administration was slow-walking reforms of the First Step Act. Layer on e-carceration in the First Step Act and tell me what you think of prison reform as it currently stands in uh, the United States. Well, I mean... He- you know, the First Step Act opened the door to a lot more use of incarceration, putting people out on electronic monitors. We even did that. I mean, you know, Biden did that as well as a response to the pandemic. Send a lot of people in the federal prison system home on electronic home on electronic monitors. So, um, I, I mean, well, I, I mean, I just want to start by. I mean, I don't consider electronic monitoring to be a reform as such. I think it's an extension of incarceration. So we have to talk about what do we mean by reform. Um, what I've seen, I mean, I think reform, a change in the prison system is happening unevenly. We find, on the one hand, in states like New Jersey, New York, California, we find a large reduction in the prison population. But we also find a lot of money being put into so-called you know, rehabilitation or reentry programs, which are also somewhat punitive rather than being supportive. Some are some are useful, but some, but, but, but some are really, you're paying money to go into an anger management program that's really not gonna help you manage your anger and you may not have anger issues to begin with, but, but that's, what you, that's what you get sent to. So I think, I think prison reform is, is uh, I think it's moving very slowly. I'm concerned that we're extending the prisons out, 
the prison prisons without walls, um, and that's electronic monitoring, but also all these other programs, whether it's drug programs, whether it's uh, <clears throat> whether it's mental health programs, that these programs and institutions are often set up with a very punitive kind of approach to the problem rather than providing people with the kinds of supports that they need. So yes, there's a lot more awareness of the problem of mass incarceration. The actions are much less weighty than the words. Well, I want to close with some hope and your final chapter, chapter abolition and challenging e-carceration. You say, um, to do this, we need to escape the prison of our existing imagination. So give us some action items that we can take, James, on this issue to uh, get to abolition and challenging e-carceration. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm always a big supporter of people taking action where they live. I mean, people sometimes think of in criminal legal things as stuff that happens far away. But every county has, you know, every county has a, has a law enforcement system. Every, every county has a mental health system that's probably not doing very well, uh, you know, substance use treatment programs that are probably not very effective. So start thinking about how you can make change in your, how you can make change in your own, own community and mobilize people in your community and particularly people who are directly impacted by these things to, to find, to look for ways to, you know, to, to make change. I think the other thing though, is that we need to think in, in the bigger picture I, I, I think it's important to think how wonderful the technology that we have is and how do we find ways it could be more under the control of community so we can speak to each other, do what we're doing now, but without having Amazon in the way, without having Zoom in the way. Why do these big corporations have to manage this technology and gather our data? We don't need them to do that in order to do this, but we have to find ways to use this technology, uh, you know, in ways that benefit the community, and that's, I think, we're at very early days in terms of reimagining all the wonderful things we could do with that technology, absent, absent Amazon and and company. And lastly, James, to the non-incarcerated individuals everywhere, what is it that you want them to know, especially as you work on this issue? Like you said, since you you got out, you've been working on. Um, the incarcerated population, formerly incarcerated population, rebuilding lives. What is it that we need to do to be part of these reforms? Because I think we don't think about it until it touches our lives, because that happens to bad people over there. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, you have to, like I say, you have to look at what's happening in your community. How much money is being spent on your local jail and your local police, as opposed to how much money is being spent on programs for the unemployed. I know in, in our community and in most communities across the country, what we've seen in the pandemic is a massive uptick in gun violence, people dying from gunshots. And that's a product of a whole lot of structural problems that make people's lives seem very futile. And so we need to begin to think about how we reallocate resources. I mean, I live in a town, a university town that I think is quite segregated, and the the privileged people that are that are connected to the university they can ignore what's happening in 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 the predominantly black sections where this violence is happening. But you have a couple, but we've had a couple gunshot instances 
downtown at the mall, and all of a sudden, all these resources are getting thrown at gun violence. It's now an emergency. It's a crisis. But when you know, when young black people were dying for years, it, it wasn't an issue. So I think we need to recognize we are all intertwined here. We are all connected. The internet makes us more connected, but we have to we have to be willing to reallocate some of those resources to people who have been on the short end of all of those unequal allocations that have been happening for decades. James Kilgore, activist, researcher, and writer, his latest book, Understanding Ecarceration, Electronic Monitoring the Surveillance State and the Future of Mass Incarceration. Check tonight's show notes for a link to James and all of his books. Perhaps consider picking it up at the local library or local bookstore, folks. And now moving from this macro picture to the micro and what can be done in our state on the issue of mass incarceration and e-carceration, we're going to meet a new nonprofit, just got their 501c3 status last summer. It is Clean Slate Utah. And due to the magic of Zoom, I was able to get on a session with their executive director, Noella Sudbury. Hi, Noella. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the program. I'm really excited to talk about what you're doing, and it all goes back a bit. Can you give us your bio sketch in brief so folks understand where you're coming from and why you're passionate about this issue of expungement? Absolutely. So I'm Noella Sudbury. I'm currently serving as the executive director of Clean Slate Utah. I'm an attorney by training. I went to school here in Utah, graduated back in 2009. And my first job as a baby lawyer was as a public defender. And that's really where I got my passion for criminal justice reform. Um, I loved being a lawyer, but very much felt like I was working in a very broken system that wasn't taking into account um, so much that was going on in people's lives their um, trauma, substance use, mental health issues. Um, so left, left the public defender's office, went into private practice, did a variety of things, and eventually landed at Salt Lake County working for the mayor of the county as a criminal justice policy advisor. And that's where I really started my path into criminal record expungement. And the mayor at the time was Ben McAdams. You became the the director of the county's Criminal Justice Advisory Council, as you said, senior policy advisor on criminal justice. But in 2018, you conceived of, organized, and led the bipartisan campaign to pass Utah's Clean Slate Law and have been involved in its implementation efforts ever since. So, you know, we saw some reform done and undone over the last couple of sessions. Uh, I'd love to get your feedback on e-carceration, given the conversation we just had with James Kilgore. But first, the legislative session, it's day three of 45. What are you looking to or working on when it comes to criminal justice reform with Clean Slate Utah? Absolutely. Happy to talk a little bit about that. So Clean Slate Utah is closely tracking, um, hopefully, three uh, different expungement bills. Uh, one is SB 35, sponsored by Senator Weiler and Representative Ward. That bill kind of builds on the work we did with Utah's Clean Slate Law, which is about to go into effect, uh, make some really important process changes to make the process easier for people, and make some adjustments that will allow Clean Slate to be implemented as intended. It actually passed the Senate floor on day one, so we are feeling really good um, about that one. It it seems to have kind of broad bipartisan support, and Senator Weiler 
um, and Salt Lake County have done a lot of work to build consensus and help move that one forward. Uh, Representative Lowry Snow is running uh, a bill on uh, to extend clean slate or automatic record clearance to juvenile records. So adult records and juvenile records live in different systems. Uh, we were able to get adult clean slate through in 2019. Um, his bill would extend automatic clearance to certain juvenile records. And this will be very impactful to um, people who had uh, involvement in the justice system from a very early age. The third bill, which is just um, open but not yet numbered, but we're hoping to see move, is sponsored by Representative Dunnigan, and it will take a look at the costs associated with an expungement looking to uh, adjust BCI fees for certificates that are non-waivable, if you don't have the money, you can't pay them. And take a look at what we can do on the court filing fee side as well. Because a lot of people are eligible to expunge their record, but as they're moving through the process, all of a sudden the price tag is huge and they can't afford it. And so they don't get their records expunged. And so we really need to make a process that works for people and, and one that's affordable for them to get through. So Really watching that um, bill carefully. It's not yet numbered, but but I know it's in the works. And and those are the ones that Clean Slate Utah um, is really focused on. There's lots of other criminal justice reform related bills. I know there's one to repeal the death penalty that we're watching carefully. So a lot of exciting stuff out there, but but we are kind of laser focused on expungement. You said BCI, Bureau of Criminal Identification. This is your digital footprint after you've been through the criminal justice system. We talked about that with James Kilgore and how all that data continues to follow you and is a barrier to really rebuilding your life. Uh, let's go back a little bit, though, to expungement. And that's um, after you've done your time and done your parole, your probation, and all of that, um, you you can go through a process for, for expungement. But according to information on your website, 90%, more than 90% of people eligible to clear their records haven't made it through the process for one reason or another. And that's why these ongoing reforms are necessary to make it as easy as ordering your sandwich on Grubhub would be nice. <laughs> I think if you've already done your, your time, you shouldn't be put through this obstacle course to get expungement, which you have earned. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, I think whenever I talk about criminal records with people, a couple of things I do emphasize, and you touched on these points. First, having a criminal record is incredibly common. Over one in four Utahns, um, which is over 800,000 people in Utah, have some type of criminal record. A lot of people think that, okay, if you turn your life around, or maybe it was something you did as a kid, it just drops off. It never drops off. Criminal records are digital and permanent, and the only way to get rid of them is to go through the legal expungement process. And they create huge barriers to jobs, to housings, to loans, to opportunities. I helped a woman the other day who wanted to expunge her record so she could volunteer in her child's school classroom, which is just so heartbreaking. For her, her record was never a barrier to employment, but it was preventing her from being there in a moment that and, and for a thing, her child, that meant most to her. Um, so why don't everybody just get their records expunged? 
because the process is very, very difficult. Even trying to figure out whether you're eligible, it's governed by statute. The statute is very confusing. A lot of people don't know what's on their record. It's been years. They know they were in trouble with the law, but they don't remember what offenses they were. And so they read the statute and they say, I don't even know what's on my record. I know I have stuff, but I can't even tell if I'm eligible and I don't know how to get my records to even make that determination. It the seems like this is a technology um, answer, right? Uh, if we're willing, yes. if we, the people are willing to invest in this technology to help these people who have proved through their actions, through completing their sentence, their probation, their parole, that they have returned to society and are, are ready to participate why is it? I mean, the library can track me down for my overdue books, <laughs> right? You know, because I'm in the system of the library. So if I'm in the system, it, it, is this part of how outdated our our tech is in the criminal justice system too? Is that a barrier? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, and you know, the process is terrible everywhere. It's costly. Most people find they need an attorney to get through it cost two to $3,000 to hire an attorney. Most people don't have that. Um, and this is really the backdrop. I mean, it leads perfectly into why we pursued clean slate. Um, because in an age, the idea of clean slate is the government now has all of the information that it needs to know who is eligible to expunge their record. It lives in court records and it lives in public safety records, BCI records. We have a statute that says who's eligible. And so, and we have this process that's long and costly and complicated. So the question for lawmakers was, um, given this process is long and complicated and we know who's eligible, could we write computer code um, to identify people who are eligible and then come up with a list of offenses where maybe as lawmakers, we feel comfortable that maybe someone doesn't need to go through that process. Uh, luckily, lawmakers said yes. And in March 2019, Utah became the second state in the nation to pass a clean slate law. It is mind boggling to me that Utah's the second one. Um, but it's really, really exciting. And so beginning on February 10th, 2022, Utah government agencies will use technology to start automatically clearing records. And this is really where um, you see high, high, high impact. Um, Clean Slate shifts that process burden from the individual to the government, and the government will automatically clear the following offenses, misdemeanor A, drug possession, um, most misdemeanor Bs and Cs, and all infractions. Uh, individuals, there's numerical limits. So if you have too many offenses, you won't be eligible. And you do have to remain crime-free for at least five years to be eligible. But the impact is huge. Over 200,000 Utahns will have at least one offense automatically cleared off their record. 200,000 Utahns, that's uh, about the size, the residential population of the capital city. Yes, absolutely. And it's all across the state, um, particularly in rural areas where there's no attorneys, um, particularly in places where um, people struggle with addiction, um, and there's not access to services. It's very, very easy to pick up a criminal record and it sticks with you. So this law will be very, very impactful. 
You've built a great website, cleanslateutah.org, with tools to help people check. You know, uh, if some or all of your records not eligible for automatic expungement under the law, folks may still need to petition the court to get their record cleared, and you can help. The nonprofit can help. What resources do you offer to folks and the community? Yes. So we're a brand new organization. So we're still um, building out the resources that we have available. Right now, we've been very focused on this law going into effect, making sure it actually happens, which has been a process. It was supposed to go into effect during COVID on May 1st, 2020. We're now in 2022. It's finally happen- happening. And so our main goal right now is to raise awareness. There is no direct notification requirement in this law. What that means is 200,000 people in Utah will be impacted by this really amazing thing and no one's going to tell them from the government. And so Clean Slate is stepping in to put up billboards, start a social media page, really spread the word throughout all of the state and all of our partners that this really exciting law has gone into effect and you might not have a record anymore. And you need to know that so you can stop checking yes when you're asked about it at every stage of your life. Um, So that's the main thing that we're doing now. Now, individuals, the other um, not issue, I mean, Clean Slate is such tremendous progress, but there are going to be individuals who have records that are not eligible for automatic clearance. It does not apply to all misdemeanors and it does not apply to felony records. A lot of those folks can still get their records expunged under Utah law. And so we also want to help them. In order to do that, um, Clean Slate Utah is actually partnering with a new public benefit corporation to design an app, right? We're not ever going to have enough staff to answer questions from hundreds of thousands of people about, are my records gone? How can I check? And so we're hoping to use technology yet again. And the idea is, let's create a mobile app where someone can put their name, date of birth into the app will verify their identity. And there's great products now that can help us with that through selfies, driver's license, any idea that any ID that you have. And once we can verify it is the person, the app will tell somebody what's on their record and what is eligible for expungement. When do you hope to have that app uh, out and ready for testing? We were hoping to have it ready by February 10th. I don't think it will quite be ready. And the reason is it's powered by court records. That's really important and different than anything available right now. Um, Right now, the process is attorneys have to go into a private subscription system and find all your records and analyze them. Uh, The court has agreed to share their data, which is amazing. They've been a tremendous partner to us, but we actually need to receive the data in order to build the app. The backend technology is there, though. So to answer your question, um, we are ready um, and we are so close to having it ready to roll out. We're hoping March, early March. Um, So the law will go into effect. The app will be available. It will tell people whether they fit into one of four buckets, either we found no records for you. Congratulations. That probably meant that if you had a misdemeanor record, it was eligible for automatic clearance. You can take some steps to verify that. Number two, we found records for you. They are eligible for expungement. Um, We would like to help you with that. Bucket three would be 
you have the type of record that is eligible for expungement, but you are in a waiting period. Under Utah law, we don't allow you to expunge a record right away. We require you to be crime-free before you're eligible. You're in year three of year five. But if you give us your email or your cell phone number, we'll reach out to you when we think you're eligible and would love to help you then. Or unfortunately, you have the type of record that is not eligible for expungement under Utah law. There are some records that due to public safety concerns, the legislature has made the determination that they will not allow an expungement. This would include some of your more violent offenses, capital offenses, um, offenses where you need to be on some type of registry for a period of time. Um, those records cannot be expunged until you're off the registry, um, et cetera. So we're super excited about it, I think. And it's very, very informed by justice-involved um, individuals. We really approached our work with, you know, if we were to redesign the system and make it work for you, what would you want it to look like? Well, Clean Slate Utah, a new nonprofit in our community, needs donations, needs volunteers, needs support of all stripes. And I just saw on your on your Facebook group for Clean Slate Utah an exciting announcement that you're actually ready to make your first hire, it sounds like. Yes, we finally have some money. We're a new organization. We have applied for many grants, and some of those are starting to come through, which is really exciting. So we are hiring an intake coordinator to hopefully be ready on February 10th to deal with the demand that we imagine our organization will face as 200,000 Utahns become eligible for this really, really exciting, life-changing thing. Where can people learn more and catch up with you virtually? Yes. Um, so follow us on Facebook. We have uh, Clean Slate Utah has a Facebook page and we're planning to post updates about this law as it goes into effect there. So please follow us on social media. Um, we have a website, www.cleanslateutah.org. Um, it is a work in progress, but we're also trying to post updates there. You can sign up for our mailing list uh, on our website and hopefully very soon start to sign up um, for appointments to meet with somebody with Clean Slate about your record. Well, Noella, let's have you back in February after this law goes into effect and hear how it's going for all the tools that you're offering to the community for automatic expungement and the entire process of helping folks get their lives back on track. Awesome. I would love to come back. It's been great to be on the show and super appreciate the opportunity. Uh, please, everyone, reach out to me. If you have any questions and um, look forward to working with many of you. Noella Sudbury of Clean Slate Utah and February 10th, folks, that is the beginning of automatic record clearance here in the state of Utah. Apparently, Noella says the governor is going to do a whole press conference and everything, and we will have her back to see how that rolls out. My thanks to Clean Slate Utah, all of our guests on the show this evening, as well as you for listening, for plugging into your community. I hope there was something that inspired you to take some action from writing your lawmakers to volunteering. There's always something that can be done. Questions, comments, suggestions? Send an email to radioactive at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones, and I've got a bit of time here, so I thought I'd go out with Vampire Weekend How Long, right here on KRCL 90.9.